Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Kevin, how are you, man? We're doing all right, Jimmy. Yeah, things are all right around here. The weather's pretty good, so we're uh, getting outside, enjoying it a little bit. Curling is wound down now, Kevin. What? What? How does Kevin Martin spend his time? I don't know yet, actually. You know, it's kind of a, a changing of time for uh, for Shauna and I because we always chased Michaela around all the ball diamonds and stuff. But now that she's playing university ball, she won't be playing much in the summertime. So yeah, it's a little bit different for us not going to the ball diamond every weekend depending on you know what city they're playing in and so for us it's probably going to be a little bit more golf <laughs> i guess than what we normally play or i could take up about nine hours a day with you kevin you could teach me how to curl that would take you a little while we, we could we could do that jimmy but i, I might go <laughs> you might have to get me off the course <laughs> nine hours a day is fine but how many years would you have to do it warren how are you man i'm great jim things are fine out here in the west coast and how are you spending your time when you're not, you know, I can't believe you have more time than, than the stuff you're doing on curling, but you're working on a book you've told us before. Yes, I'm doing actually at the moment, the final proofing on the, on the book. So that's fairly intense and it's going to be another week uh, to get through that. So between that and inside curling and uh, doing a little workout and hitting a few golf balls at the range, that's uh, what I'm spending my time at. Give us the title of the book. What's it going to be called? Give us a little teaser. Sticks and Stones, the story of how curling became an Olympic medal sport. Lots of stuff to talk about today in the show, fellas, so strap in. Let's roll one out. Last Rock, eighth end, up by two. Should we all I don't think I'm I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Benny. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, boys, uh, always lots to talk about here on the show, but today uh, there's been a lot of talk, uh, and we, we spoke about this when we started doing the podcast about uh, you know the expenses that a lot of clubs are facing. Kevin, you looked into it in Edmonton and a lot of other places, the big tax stuff that they play, their utilities that they're trying to pare down, but uh, not everyone's happy with it. And there was a story that broke uh, from CTV about the current challenge that four curling clubs in Saskatoon are finding themselves in, Warren, you're going to talk about that. Uh, but nine months ahead of the Olympics, Sweden is doing what Canada is not allowed to do. And uh, we want to find out what that is. Plus, we've got some uh, really good emails today. You can email us at insidecurling at gmail.com. We're on Twitter. Check it out, at Curling Inside. Uh, Facebook, at Inside Curling. All sorts of stuff on the Facebook. You should jump on there in our Facebook group. 
at Inside Curling Podcast is where we are on Instagram. We talked a lot about uh, curling club costs and in some cases taxes. There was a story this week uh, from CTV uh, on the current challenge that four clubs in Saskatoon are finding themselves in. They've asked the city to consider one of the three options going forward with regard to property tax. Big complaint is all four clubs are looking at challenges to open the doors and the city has submitted to some of them property tax increase of 25%. Warren, what's this all about? Well, we've talked about, as you mentioned, uh, this issue a a few times, and this kind of brings it right to the forefront. Uh, In the city of Saskatoon, put out the assessment for taxes for this coming year, and I guess in some cases, one or two of these clubs were seeing a 25% increase. So uh, they put up their hand and started to to scream a bit about it. The city kind of came back with them three options, and uh, I don't think they're very happy about any one of those options. Interesting enough, those curling clubs were being taxed like businesses. So one of the options they've suggested to them is they will change their taxes to be a residential category. But in one case, uh, I think it's the Granite Club was looking at $11,000 increase on taxes as things currently sit. The second option was to provide them with a temporary tax abatement. But the the interesting point in the the story was that wouldn't take a place until 2022. It wasn't going to do them much good for this current year. And the other one was develop a recreation and and sport grant program similar to other sports. But... uh, it still wouldn't help them probably an awful lot with the tax issue. So, I mean, this is a this is an ongoing problem that's been haunting curling forever. And it's sort of like I always ask the question, so this is not a private club. This isn't a business for, for making money. It's a community recreational service. It's no different than the hockey rink, the baseball diamond, the soccer pitch. And because it's a curling club, people have it in their minds or these civic people that it's some kind of a private facility. And it isn't. And, uh, I don't know why this lobby hasn't become stronger across the country long before now, but from the provincial associations right down to Curling Canada, and certainly going after and the politicians in particular, because Curling Community represents a lot of votes. And if they get themselves together and operate as a mass, they can certainly have a huge influence on what's going to happen. And I think somebody's got to do something here because this is crazy that these curling clubs are facing probably problems opening their doors if they have to meet these tax assessments. And I'm sure this isn't going to be the only situation we're going to hear about. I know a lot of curling clubs on the West Coast here are kind of touch and go how they're going to get things going. And then you put on top of that the huge hydro costs that they have, in particular their hydro costs at startup every year are very large. So again, this continues. This has been going on forever. I don't know why the curling groups haven't stepped up and started to lobby to do something about it, but it's another one of the issues that is unique to curling. Yeah, no question it's unique to curling because... uh... To your point, Warren, curling clubs aren't, uh, they're, they're not for profit for the most part. Um, they're a community organization that, you know, loves to have people come in and, and simply curl at the lowest possible price. And, and with COVID, of course, um, last fall, most of the clubs put the ice in, which is the biggest cost of the year. But then within, you know, some clubs got, you know, two, three curling games in, especially in Alberta here, maybe a couple of games, and then they had to shut down. So there just wasn't the revenue coming in, but the expenses were spent <laughs> already because, of course, they put the ice in. So then you've got that situation where the government spent a ton of money. <laughs> also, they're trying to tax everybody. So obviously, it, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that if you have a lack of revenue because of being shut down, and then the governing bodies of, of cities or municipalities or, or provinces 
or, or national governments try to tax more when you have less revenue, the math simply doesn't add up. And, and I think you're right. It's going to have to be looked at as, as a nonprofit uh, sport like hockey or swimming or you, you name it and have to be viewed that way. Unfortunately, right now, it's viewed as a private club, a, a private business, and it's just not the case. And, and that's going to, you know, I, I think the lobbying efforts have to be uh, Canada-wide, but boy, oh boy, that hasn't started yet. So that's, uh, it's troublesome, definitely, for our sport across the board. So Warren, are they talking about two taxes here? I'm, you know, I'm assuming property tax would be one, of them. and then is there a business tax that they're, they're paying as well? I assume it's just the property tax. I, I doubt that they would have a business tax assessed against them, but this is going to vary by area. Who knows in some of these uh, cities and, and towns what they might be doing. Usually in the smaller centers, however, it is the civic area, civic uh, group that do own and operate the curling facility in many of those cases. But it's such a hit and miss situation. I just go here and look at, uh, at the West Coast, and there's a number of facilities still operating as, quote, private clubs, Yet there's a whole ton of facilities that are owned and operated by the municipalities. And it's rather interesting, uh, by the luck of the draw, depending upon where you live, if you want to be a curler, you may be faced with this uh, task of having to operate this, quote, private club versus a municipal facility. So it's uh, long overdue to be addressed and dealt with by the curling associations and the clubs as a mess, not working individually. You say not for profit, but... You know, curling clubs have a bar. They got a re- they got a restaurant. A lot of them. Um, I know you'd mentioned you know s- soccer pitches and ball diamonds and stuff like that, where they're not generating any revenue. So is that not different, Warren? Than although we say not for profit, but aren't these clubs, uh, Warren, making money on their bar and stuff and and charging people to curl? And- well, they're generating money to try and keep their costs down. Uh, so if they can generate some money through their bar and through the sale of merchandise or whatever else they might do, maybe they run a bond spiel where they might make a couple of dollars on it, they can in turn reduce some of the costs to their members. But remember, these facilities also require constant upgrading and repair. And so I know many times they have to go to extra call to, to the members to try and they got to put in a new chiller or something else has to be done. So it's, it's just not the f- fact of having to charge dues to turn on the lights and pay the staff and do the things required just to keep ice in. They've also got to maintain the building. So they use every source possible to try and make enough money to make ends meet. But I can assure you, some of them may be able to build up a bit of a reserve fund, but most of them are operating pretty much hand to mouth. I wanted to bring up uh, softball. You brought up softball that there's no revenue streams, but a lot of the softball diamonds have four diamonds and in the center of the diamonds, there's a, a building, a, a bar, a restaurant, slow pitch or the softball teams you know can have have a drink while the other games are going on or after their game is done they can go and uh, have a beer when they're done and have a bite to eat so softballs actually went that direction and uh, and they have you know fairly strong revenue streams actually during a uh, a ball tournament where you'll bring in you know 16 or 24 teams of uh, you know 14 15 players that's a lot of people you're housing there and, and having cocktails and, and food for uh, an entire weekend so revenues are pretty good there too if uh, you know if you can get the people coming in and and that's where curling you know we've talked about it where curling has to kind of look at things maybe a little different and uh, and have their bar and uh, restaurant be a third party uh, situation to uh, to increase revenues that, that may be a way to uh, to do this so that you somehow uh, have enough revenue to be able to, uh, to afford to keep the doors open in these places. What may seem unfair to me, Warren, is that these curling clubs aren't open all year round, right? So there's, there's lots of them, right, that shut down and yet still experience the same hassle and, and the stress 
of having to pay a bunch of taxes. Yeah, I mean, that's the other issue with curling. We've somehow gotten into this mode of it's a six-month business, and it goes with the season pretty much October to April, which is the fall-winter months. And, of course, today there's no need for that to have the restrictions that it once was in that time frame because of the, of the climate and natural ice. So today there's no reason why curling can't be operating 10, 11 months of the year, or at least eight or nine, which again could increase their ice utilization and the revenue that they could generate there. And of course, it's going to be better for the staff because that's the other problem. It's very hard to have dedicated staff when uh, you can only really pay them for six months of the year. And I know of a couple of instances where the uh, manager in particular is paid for 12 months so that they, they keep them. Um, they're maybe doing other things of renting out the space for weddings and banquets and things of that nature during the summer months. But all those things are a challenge as well because it's not a full-time venture, it's part-time. So I think the whole utilization of these buildings and how this whole thing uh, is approached moving forward um, needs to be looked at seriously. And I do not believe that curling needs to be continued as a six-month activity. It, needs, it can be expanded. Kevin, yeah, the club you curled at, the club in Edmonton, give us an example of uh, how many members a, a club around town here would have and what does it cost uh, someone to curl? Over the years, um, I've been at the Otwell Curling Club. I had my store there when uh, we first opened it in 1991 um, and then moved over to the Avenir Curling Club as a member for a while when I was younger and then the Savile Sports Centre. So all different situations as far as how many, but, uh, but a healthy club, you'd, you'd like to have 100 members per sheet. So if you have a two-sheeter, that'd be 200 members. If you have an eight-sheeter, that's 800 members. That's a really healthy club if you can have 100 members per sheet. Cost? Somewhere, now there's that very like crazy, if you're talking about Lougheed where I'm from, small town or the Savile Sports Centre or, but you know, somewhere around the $350 for one game a week for 22 games. So that's fairly inexpensive. You're, you're, you know, you're looking at maybe $15, $16 per game, which is fairly cheap, I think, for entertainment value. And that's a two hour game. So and if you curl twice a week, sometimes they'll give you a break. So say it's 350 for one night a week, then maybe it's 550 or something or $600 for two nights a week. And uh, that's kind of how uh, curling clubs do it. Prices are going to have to go up because for, you know, if you're thinking, Jim, of, uh, of golf, which is, you know, the same length of season, you know, you'd be hard pressed in Edmonton, Alberta to get a, a membership at a golf course for 500 bucks. It's not going to happen. You know, you're more at 3500 or $3,000. Warren, should they increase the prices for the membership? Overall, curling has always been very cheap. I always, always used to uh, throw the one out there. I said, uh, in many cases, you can play two games a week for a season for the cost of two green fees. And that's has been the case over time. And I think as well, it's something else that needs to be considered is increasing the the cost to the sport. But it's difficult because people get uh, things burned into their minds of what something should cost. And like Kevin, I was in the curling equipment business for a lot of years, and it was always really difficult to get the value into uh, into the products you were selling because it just was uh, seemingly difficult with the sport of curling. Yet the same people would go out and pay $3,000 for a set of golf clubs and not blink an eye. Has it always been a problem, Warren? You've curled a long, long time when you think way back to the, to the days when you were competing. Was it always an issue of, with clubs, or how did it work back then? With you know, what what were the costs? Of- oh, it's always been an issue. I, I think the fact of uh, public facilities has been more a, a matter of fact the last probably thirty years. Certainly, if you go back forty, fifty years ago, there were very few public facilities. 
The only ones that I can really stand out in my mind in Alberta was the Sportex in Edmonton that was civically owned, 24 sheets of ice, and the Big Four building in Calgary was 48 sheets of ice under one roof. Those were one run by Northlands Park, which, quote, is a government, whether people want to admit or not, as is the Calgary Stampede, which operated the one in Calgary. But I guess they were operating for profit, but uh, the profit didn't uh, last for them because both uh, eventually disappeared and uh, neither one exists anymore. Okay, word out of Sweden this week uh, that the Olympic Committee uh, has named the men's, women's, and mixed doubles team for the 2022 Olympics. Kevin, what's happening here? They're allowing their teams to play in both four-man and mixed, but we're not allowed to. Yeah, isn't that something? It's just a, a, a decision made. And I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I totally agree with Curling Canada's idea, but, but they have their reasons to not allow athletes to go in both. Um, when you have somebody like an Oscar Erickson, who uh, is you know, arguably the best curler in the world, um, when you have phenom type player like that in your country, I don't think it's a bad idea if you, you know, you have that person play in more than one discipline, trying to win more than one medal for your country. Now the timing's interesting. We're in June here, uh, a long ways out before the Olympics in February, and naming their team this early probably is very good for the team because then you can plan your your. Uh, your schedule, your strategic schedule from February in Beijing and then backtrack all the way to the start of the season so that you can plan your season so you can try to peak at the Olympic Games. Whereas a team from Canada, of course, you've got to peak for your Olympic trials. In some cases, you have to peak for your pre-trials, then peak for your trials, and then peak again at the Olympics to try to win a medal. You know, obviously it's far more difficult in, in the Canadian system. Uh, but the reason for that system obviously is the depth in Canada and how many really good teams we have. Whereas in Sweden, there's not a lot of argument. Who's going to be the lady team? Well, it's got to be Anna. Who's going to be a man? Well, it's got to be Nick. And then you just want Oscar to play again and, and pick a partner. It, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I think it's smart for Sweden to name their teams when they have. But boy, I don't want to see anything change with our Olympic trials. I'm not sure we need a pre-trials and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure if that's necessary in Canada. But definitely the Olympic trials and, uh, and, and that's how we decide to go to the Olympics. The timing of our trials is pretty good right now. You know, it, it's tight if you don't get named till December. So you've really only got about six weeks to prepare your, your life for being gone for a month, um, which is tricky. Um, but you're going to the Olympics, so <laughs> you can figure it out. Warren, you were the guy who got curling into the Olympics. What do you think about this? Well, I think probably the earlier you can name your teams, the better to give them as much of a, a chance to prepare as possible. And the fact that you're then putting them up in a situation as well where they have nothing else to interfere with their season next year. But let me say this, the Canadian trials weren't always run in November, December. When we did the demonstration sport in Calgary in 1988, the actual trials were run at the end of April in 1987. So the two teams that were going to represent Canada in Calgary at the 88 Games, uh, Linda Moore, Ed Lukowicz, they were determined at the end of April. And when things happened in 1998, oh, I should say, of course, back to 1992, and Kevin was part of that because he represented Canada, that it was simply the winners of the Briar and Scotties from 1991 that represented Canada and Alberville. And the reason for that was that things had been toned down pretty, pretty, pretty much at that point in time. And it was made pretty clear that whatever curling did in Alberville, which wasn't Alberville, it was Prolignon, which was about an hour in the mountains <laughs> outside of Alberville, wasn't going to impact whether curling was going to get medal status or not. So 
that was one of the reasons it was decided just to take the the winners from the 91 Scotties and Briars, Briar. But in 1987, we did a trials that was done in uh, Calgary at the end of April. And interesting enough, CTV was a television televising network of the Olympics then, and uh, that was before CTV owned TSN. And uh, CBC and TSN were the televising uh, group at that point in time for Curling Canada. So it's CTV doing the uh, Olympics, they were firmly ready to commit doing this trials event at the end of April. But I think when we started to get into 1998, discussions of doing trials in April did not meet favorably from a television point of view because of dealing with NHL playoffs, NBA playoffs, and the starting of the baseball season. It was going to be too much at that point in time with the uh, television uh, distribution network that was available. So that was an issue back then, one of the reasons it got moved to November. Uh, I know some people have suggested maybe April is when the trial should be. I'm not sure I have a leaning one way or the other, but uh, it's something else. Again, it could be an interesting discussion is should it be considered to be moved? Every other Olympic sport, if you're a skier, you can ski in any, you can ski in a bunch of disciplines, you know, giant slalom, downhill slalom. If you're a gymnast, you can do the balance beam, floor exercise, all that stuff. Track star, you can run 100, 200, triple jump. It seems it should be allowed uh, in, in curling. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. And that's where, you know, I'd love, I certainly, when you're lucky enough to have somebody really good in your country, medals matter, um, I think, uh, financially, especially medals matter. So if you can, you have this Oscar Erickson in your country, well, have that person play both because you, your chances of winning are, are greater with a better, with just a better player. So, you know, it, it, it makes sense to me, but uh, when Warren was talking about moving to April uh, as a curler, as, as a, the athlete, uh, if I look, I'll put that hat on as an old athlete. Um, I, I really like the trials being somewhat close to the Olympics um, simply because the winning team was on a roll just before the Olympics. Um, so I thought that you know, for that reason, um, it gives us a better chance at maybe meddling. And it's, you know, and, and Canada has had a terrific record of meddling both in women's and men's at the Olympic Games. And of course, mixed doubles now. So uh, I, I don't think it's broken. I think it's working. Um, obviously, last Olympics, you know, we got the gold in the mixed doubles, but didn't get uh, any other medals, which was the first time. Um, I'd be interested to, to you know, see in, in the next Olympics or two, you know, if we continue to not medal, then we better have a look at it. But if you know, we get back to normal and, and have uh, two or three uh, medals come out of uh, Beijing, then I think we probably keep it the same and, and have the trials somewhat close to the Olympics so you get a team that's on a roll when they, when they win. Very good, boys. Uh, so far, so good. Uh, when we come back, we're going to dive into a couple of emails, uh, one about burned stones. There's a, a fellow who's uh, written us, uh, thinks there should be some changes there going forward. Uh, also, there's uh, people are starting to wonder now about what, why are you allowed to uh, have a concession during a game? Why can why can you give up uh, and call the game before the eight ends or ten ends? So we're going to talk about that when we come back. Okay, email time, fellas. Uh, we've got one from Kyler Clybrink. Is that from the famous Clybrink family, Warren? 
It is. His mother, Shannon, one of the famous uh, female curlers in Canada over a period of at least 20 years, uh, Olympic bronze medalist in 2006, and now apparently becoming a very active coach. So a person who's contributed a lot to the sport. So this is her son, Kyler. Yeah. And he says, going forward, I believe there are a few rules that need to be cleared up for curling to be truly professional. I believe lots of rules come from the gentleman's sport side of things. Uh, just imagine we're talking about a, playing a championship game for a million dollars on TV in the first and biggest rule, in my opinion, is burning the stone after the fall, uh, far hog line. The imposing team has the choice. And, and before we give you that, what he's upset about is um, Rachel Holman pulled a rock against Denmark. Uh, and he's saying, I, I don't think this can happen. Okay, so um, the opposing team has the choice to remove the touchstone and replace everything back to the way it was. Two, they can leave the stones where they are. And three, they can place the stones where they would have gone had the stone not been touched. The rules are not in any particular order, and the opposing team can choose option one, two, or three. I believe this rule places unreasonable pressure on the opposing team to make a decision based on almost nothing. Some people will never do option one, pull the stone. Some people will do option one some of the time different criteria like high stakes or don't like the team you're playing <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i hate you i'm pulling that stone um some people will always do option one and pull the stone no matter what most sportsmen like uh, people said teams will most often use option two or three and say it's fine you didn't affect where the rock was going this is what uh i i do and would expect my team to do by the way he, he curls a ton uh, that's what I expect my team to always do. But if it was for a million bucks, uh, that would be testing me for sure. Stakes should not change a rule or how a rule is handled. I believe the rule needs to be rewritten to penalize the offending team and not give the other team the option to let them off the hook. Um, proposed rule number one, from end to end, one singular rule for burned stones. If the stone is touched, the stone will be removed unless the opposing team decides the stone was going to help them in some way. I believe this will penalize the team that burnt the rock and take undue pressure off the opposing team. It will make it more constant in high stakes curling across competitions, in my opinion. So what do you, what do you say, Warren, to all that, the, the, the burned rock rule? Well, this has been going around and around for a long time. And this uh, whole discussion started many years ago. What he's proposing is pretty much what the rule once was. But back in my era, there were a couple of teams that were supposedly renowned for having a rock coming down the ice that was going to do their team some damage by the look of it, and as a result, they burned it. And uh, back in those days, with the rules being the way they were, if you hit the rock at any point in time when it was moving, it was automatically removed. So this adjustment was brought in to more or less deal with that situation, and it was changed two or three times. Uh, I have to probably agree with Kyler. I think that that's been made too complicated. It's been made too difficult. And the fact, again, when you burn a rock, you're at fault. And I think, uh, stop it. The other team says, just a minute, I think that would have done this, this, and that. And then that should be their right to do so, if in fact they feel that would have been the case. And, and I think keep it as simple as that. Um, I think it's been way, made way too complicated. I don't think that most people that step on a sheet of curling ice even probably are, are aware of how this rule really functions. And if they were faced with a situation, probably wouldn't even know what to do with it. And, and this is a problem with this kind of a rule. Uh, if it's going to exist, it's got to be workable. If it's going to exist at the top level of the sport, it's got to be enforceable. 
And I think this is one of probably about three rules in curling that's important. And uh, right now it's kind of all over the map with how it's being dealt with, but he's right. You start playing for a million dollars or even a hundred thousand dollars, and all of a sudden this type of stuff becomes very important. And uh, you know, I always go back to golf when Dustin Johnson lost the PGA Championship a number of years ago because he grounded grounded his club in a sand trap he didn't know was a sand trap, and it cost him the tournament. I mean, so it's the same thing at that top level. These rules, if they're there, they must be enforced. So. I kind of agree with what he's suggesting. It's time for that whole thing to be changed. So if I touch, if I touch my own rock, Warren, uh, as compared to if I touch your rock, what what, what happens? What, in mo- okay, so two situations. In motion, if I touch my rock in motion, from my point of view, it comes off right now, unless the other team says, yeah, but that would have done the following, which was to our advantage. If you were to touch the other team's rock in motion uh, inadvertently in some way, it then becomes their choice as to, okay, you touched it, but if you hadn't have, it would have done the following, uh, which that's fairly clear. I don't think that's an issue, but it's this other one when it's your own stone, and it's not between the hog lines. Between the hog lines, it's very clear. You touch the rock between the hog lines, it comes off. If it's Once it's inside the second hog line where it becomes very obvious what the, what the rock is going to do, that this kind of silly rule exists. So... It's, it's one of the difficult things in curling, but I've always said the key thing is if you touch a rock, I don't care by how much you touch it. There's no such thing as I burned it a little. Um, it comes off. And there's been a couple of really difficult situations have existed. Uh, I was part of the 1994 juniors when Kevin Cooey virtually lost the Canadian Junior Championship because uh, of a rock that was in motion that uh, probably would have determined him as the winner and an extra end was, was, was kicked by one of his players who couldn't get out of the way. And uh, unfortunately, uh, when that happens, uh, it's your stone, it's your player. There's nothing you can do except sorry. Kevin, uh, surely you found yourself in this position. Uh, are you a guy who says rules are rules? Or have you been a gentleman, as they say, Kevin, and, and, and given the guy a break? Well, that's you're laughing. <laughs> that's well, it is. It's so funny. Uh, curling. Uh, that's why you know so many people love our sport. It's a gentleman's sport. You hear it all the time. The problem is the degree of gentlemanliness. Is that a word? Gentlemanliness. The uh, it is now. It, yep. <laughs> it uh, it alters a little bit if it's for five bucks, five hundred dollars, fifty thousand, hundred thousand, million. It'll change. You know, you go well, like I gotta pull that rock off. It's for a million. But if it's for five bucks, oh, Jim, don't worry about it. You you didn't mean to touch it. And, uh, you know, so and, uh, a couple of slaps on the back and, you know, have a beer and we're done. But the, the rules have to be a lot, I guess, more clear so that when something happens, um, like with Rachel Holman in the Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, when the rock is was touched, and it was touched by uh, Team Denmark, it's not clear as to what the right thing to do is in uh, in your curling club and in your gentlemanly game. It wasn't touched that hard. You just leave it. <laughs> but but it's the Olympics for goodness sakes. You know, there's a lot on the line here. So, you know, Rachel, I think totally fine. She, uh, she moved that rock, put it in the corner. Um, I just don't like that the, the team has to come out and do that. Um, the official, that's what officials are for. Like, you know, to help with these situations. Um, you know, Rachel should have been able to just go to the official. Uh, Team Denmark touched the rock after the hog line. I uh, just wanted you to make sure you knew that, and then they could go to Team Denmark. Did you touch the rock? Yes, we did, sir. Oh, 
okay, well, here, here's the rule, period. <laughs> and it's very simple. And if Rachel at that point, you know, because now, now the umpire's talking on international television, you do have two choices. Uh, you can do this or this. And Rachel chooses, well, I'll do this. Perfect. And everybody's happy at the end because it was a major incident when when it happened in Pyeongchang. And it shouldn't have been. It's just because to Kyler's point, which I appreciate Kyler sending in this email, um, it's just not clear enough in our sport. It's a problem as well. It's uh, the difference between, again, the top-level competition and lower-level or bond-spiel competition. So as it sits right now, if you're in a Canadian championship or world championship, there are officials at the end of each sheet. But because it has been so, I don't know, hesitant to say the official will make the following move. In fact, if they observe the following, they don't or they can't. So they sit there. They see, they see what's happening. But what Rachel needed to have done was turn to the official and said, did they burn the stone? And the official would have said, yes. And then she would have gone, the official would have gone and pulled the team, the other team and said, two teams together and said, here's the options you have to deal with this. But Rachel, as she would have in a club game or probably a normal bond spiel where there's no official sitting there, she took the law into her own hands. And, and that's where she got criticized, which again, she shouldn't have. She didn't do anything incorrect. But again, this is the, the, the foggy thing with sport. And uh, as curling is growing here and there's more and more at stake, those observers or officials at the end who are impartial there to watch what's going on and to be able to give the interpretation when asked or should have just automatically gone forward and said, you burned the stone, I think is another area that's got to be looked at clearly and uh, revised to some degree and as to determining at what level of competition must you have trained observers or officials at the end of the sheet to deal with this kind of stuff. So it's again, it's a gray area with curling because we, you know, it's always, it's the difference between the top competition and, and the club game or the small bond spiel. And uh, they're all be kind of being treated the same way. And they really can't be when you start getting more and more at stake. Kev, here's what I'm doing. If my, if my, my guy throws a rock and it's brutal and it's about to wreck, <laughs> I'm telling him, burn the stone, burn it. <laughs> kick that thing, quick. Yeah, kick it, kick it, kick it. <laughs> you laugh, but uh, I can tell you in the 70s, there was a couple of instances of virtually that happening. And that's where this whole rule, this whole rule started to come into existence. Just let, let's get it like, have you ever watched a baseball game lately? Uh, they got video review. The team protest, the guy was safe, you called him out, umpires right to the cameras. Uh, maybe it's time for that, you guys. Get get the video review going. Well, it, except it, video review uh, isn't always 100% uh, accurate as well. And the problem in the game of curling as we sit today, uh, you've got five sheets of ice uh, happening and you've got video of every stone happening on one sheet, but not on the other four. So you can't really go to video review unless you can do it for every game on every shot. Otherwise, that becomes inconsistent. So... That's a difficult one to do as we sit today. We may get to a point in time where there's a video on every sheet of ice, and then maybe it can become more of an issue. But, I mean, we get down, there aren't many rules in curling that have this kind of significance. And I look at any of these rules involving touch stones, whether it be moving stones or stationary rocks, are really important. Sweeping was an issue in there for a long time with regard to the rules. And finally, a conclusion was reached that the rules that they existed with sweeping what purpose were they serving, and they weren't enforceable. So because they weren't enforceable, it was pretty much removed. So besides the, the, the touchstones, the other rule that we have that can be a set of controversy is the hog line. And, and again, there's 
again, my point of view, it's the touch rock rules and the hogline rules are the two that are important in the sport of curling. And there's got to be a line there somewhere where that rock must be released and it must be determined that you can't go beyond that line. And I know Kevin and I have had this chat a couple of times. Well, you know, um, they're not over by much or a couple of inches. And I, I guess we go back to some of the comments. I look at Brad Gushu's one was he let go of the rock. He was up to his crotch. Uh, it's really hard to tell, quite frankly, w- without the hog line sensors, how far someone is over with it. It's, it's, it's almost impossible. So I believe that sensor has to be there. And, and I believe if you want to give some leeway, say, okay, the rock's got to be released by the line, but the sensor is going to be put eight, eight inches outside the line or six inches. So there is some leeway there. But again, that rule at the top level, and again, we start playing for a million dollars or or a lot of money on the line. I mean, um, it's it, it's important. It's it's what makes the game playable, and to some degree already, because we go back to the fact that this game was designed to throw a rock from a hack to a button 130 feet away, and we've changed that dramatically from the initial concept, which is to a very large degree why we've had these challenges with scoring, because the closer you get to the other end with that stone the less skill is going to be involved in making things happen. So somebody slides the second hog line, lets the rock go there. We haven't left much skill. The skill is now sliding. It's not, uh, it's not throwing. So my opinion, there's two really important rules in curling need to be enforced at the top level. That's anything to do with the stones stationary or moving and the hog line rule. The other rules are courtesies. They're not big issues. They could be in certain occasions, but they don't require the same attention, I believe, that these other two rules do. You're making it very difficult for me, Warren, not to crack a joke when you were talking about Brad Gushu's crotch and the hog line, okay? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot, uh, uh, Kyler, right, for your email. I'm distracted right now, Kevin. Um, he, he even goes deeper, Kevin, and says, and then we'll move on to our last email. He goes in and says, what happens if the if you got the burn rock and now your team is having a huddle? Two guys want to forfeit Kevin, thinking that's the thing to do, and the other two go, "Forget that! There's a hundred grand here. What do you do?" Well, they got to fight it out as a team. <laughs> There's no, and that's that's all the that's all the issue here. It's really good that Kyler brought this to to our attention. I think it's excellent to have this discussion. The hog line one, I think, is a lot easier to fix um, with technology these these days. I think we'll be able to have a less expensive option. The handles that you see currently in big um, events and big games, those uh, with the kind of the shiny silver handle, they're very expensive. So I think we just need to to have you know, a more modern idea. You know, they kind of break down a lot, and they're just you know they were great, a great invention. Now I think we just need as a sport to move on, so that every time you have a, a an event, a World Curling Tour event, a Grand Slam. A provincial Briar Worlds Olympics Olympic Trials. Um, every time you have those events, automatically you have those sensors in the ice. I think that's something that the, the game needs to do, and that would be quite simple. I think now with uh, you know with the uh, the technology changing and becoming a little bit easier and less expensive, that's something that the the world of curling can expect. I think over the next uh, few years. Yeah, I, I think the big thing you mentioned, Kevin, uh, I think that's the problem. I mean, I was around this for quite a while. There, there just simply wasn't enough care taken. 
and the maintenance of those handles and how they were handled and how the whole thing was, it was it's been dealt with too casually. And I think there's a, a need for the parties involved to come together and determine how many sets of those handles are required to be able to ensure that they are at the following events and that uh, becomes somebody's job to make sure that those, if it's got a handle, has a problem, replace it. Brand new one right now, that there's no questions ever should be existing of the reliability of the, of the equipment. And I think that's been a problem up until now. They're there, but they're kind of not there. And they don't really care enough about it. They're not careful enough with those handles. And I think that's, that's you hit the nail on the head. That's the key to the future. They, it has to be updated technology, good care taken of it, and a huge importance put on how that whole thing is done. By the way, and everyone agrees, we're talking about at the at the competitive level here, Kevin. Okay, not the casual curler who hears this and going, "What? Burn stones? What?" Well, that's right, Jimmy, and that, that's a big point. You know, you know, I'm not a very good golfer, and and so you, you go out and hit one to the right and into the trees, and you know, if you can't find it, you're supposed to hit another one off the tee. I could stand there all day and hit balls into the bush. So we don't play it that way. We walk up somewhere near where you hit it in the bush, and you just drop one and add a stroke. It's not proper rules. It's not, it's not proper at all. But I could honestly stand there and hit balls, push them to the right into the trees, as everybody that's golf with me knows. I could hit a six or eight of them in there. I'd be hitting 13 off the tee. Well, <laughs> this is ridiculous. You're not talking high level. You know, if I'm in the, in the rough and I don't have, have a very good lie, well, you know, usually you Kick know, bump away. it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah bump it up. You know, you can get a, yeah, I can't hit it out of a divot. I'm not good enough. I'll just shank it into the bush. <laughs> so, you know, it's different with uh, when you're talking about playing for $100,000 or playing on the tour or playing in the briar or playing at the Tuesday night men's league. You know, you broom a rock by accident. You know, a couple of the guys will have a laugh and they go, well, whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Just leave it. Yeah, I, I think the other thing too is as we, if this whole thing can get straightened out properly, it can very much become an issue too when you start talking about issuing uh, world ranking points. And uh, depending upon whether or not you operate your event in specific manner, and that is with the proper issues with regard to game control and uh, line handles, depends how many points that event can actually be for. And so all your top ranked events are going to be done this way. So they'll be worth the top points. Maybe there's going to be some events below that level that aren't going to be run in the same way. And so the points are not going to be as, as high for those. So there's all sorts of things that can be done to encourage all this to become a consistent uh, matter when you've got events that involve people that are working in world rankings. You know, golf's a good comparison. Could you imagine, Kevin? And I've seen it happen with people just starting out playing golf or if we're playing for five bucks, $5 Nassau. And you ground your club in a sand trap, which, you, you know, the real rule is you're not allowed to, right? You're not allowed to touch the sand. And, and your partner went over and said, oh, grounded your club, two strokes. <laughs> I mean, I would tackle him on the green, okay, and say, I'll show your grounding, okay? Right? It would be, I get it, right? I get, I get it. It's, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. But Well, Jimmy, when, uh, when I started golf, I don't know, uh, did you ever play sand greens? I have. So what it is, Jim, like back when I started golf around Lougheed, Sedgwick, and where I come from, all the golf courses had sand greens. They're made of sand. So you'd whack your ball onto the green. Then there was a steel thing, and you'd take it, and you'd run it across the green over the hole, pull a cup out, and dump it because it's full of sand. And that would give you a nice, flat putting surface. And you'd move the ball from where it's sitting straight across onto the smooth area and then you'd putt and then when everybody was done putting 
Then you'd take the steel thing, flip it over. It was like a rake on the other side, little short, little rake. And then you'd go around the green and off to the next tee box. <laughs> Sand greens. So, you know, you, you actually pulled your ball, like you grabbed it and you moved it a couple of feet. And it was just standard way to play the game back when I was a kid. So, uh, Okay, final uh, email uh, today. Hi, Warren and Kevin and Jimmy. Love your podcast. I've been on side with Warren. There's a rarity, Kev. Someone's agreeing with Warren. We don't hear that very often. Uh, I'm teasing, of course. I've been on side with Warren and Neil H. for years. That eight ends is the game. We now need to talk about no concession. No other sport allows it. Fans have bought tickets to watch curling, and if it's a grand slam, they could be done in four ends. An hour for a ticket. What's up with that? Warren and I have both encountered events in Canada Cup, uh, Camrose and the Briar, whereby teams in the final were informed during the game that they must go eight or ten ends, depending on the event. Teams started to slide stones to get through the game. In, in the CCI as chief umpire, is that right, Warren? CCI or CC1? It's Canada Cup. Canada Cup, okay. Oh, I, okay, I got you. <laughs> in the Canada Cup, I, as chief umpire, <laughs> I don't know if this gets edited out, folks, but I call it CCI1. It's, it's, <laughs> uh, and the, you never thought you needed a host who could read, did you, folks? Uh, in the Canada Cup, I, as chief umpire, told the teams this is unacceptable and that the paid ticket holders, their sponsors, and their family wanted to see them curl regardless of the score. Question, I want eight ends, no concession. How do we keep teams playing? Do we offer points scored brought into the equation? We need to eliminate tiebreaker games for sure. So there's a bunch there, Warren. Well, first of all, that's from Brenda Rogers, who I think both Kevin and I are very well. Brenda has been uh, an official with Curling Canada for many, many years and, and one of the best head officials right now in the game. So it's an interesting point. And, and again, it comes at, at, back to the point in our last discussion, the difference between playing in a top-level event and a club game versus a, even a small bond spiel where there's no spectators, there's no television, and we probably possibly have to look at those two situations again quite differently. So she's right. When you get into a big arena, the arena's full of people. There's a television network involved. So you've got a huge amount of commitment there. And as she suggests, it's been booked for eight ends or 10 ends. And so the people that are coming in the building have, have paid their money and, and they want to watch. And I think it's an important point she makes as well. Sometimes they may have come in to watch Kevin Martin play. And whether Kevin Martin's losing by six or up by six, they still want to see him throw and see him play. And I can look back at the same thrill I had the first time I was on a golf course back 10 years ago when Tiger Woods was playing. I was watching him play practice rounds because I didn't care what he was playing for. I just wanted to watch him play. And I think that's something we sometimes lose sight of when we're trying to particularly bring in younger people into the building, that they want to see those players on the ice playing and whether they're winning or whether they're losing. So that's a big issue. Television network is, a, is another uh, factor involved here. And for the most part, I guess if there's multiple games, they can go from one game to the other. But if there's only one game out there and they've booked in three hours for that telecast, that time is booked in and that can't really be changed. So what happens if that game ends in six ends or seven ends or even eight ends when it's supposed to be 10? Uh, now they've got to fill in that time with something. And the other important thing that's been up until this stage of time is sold airtime. So if the final of the briar is scheduled for 10 ends, there's been airtime sold around uh, 10 ends of that briar. So if it ends after eight ends, that means there's two ends of airtime that have been sold for that event 
that now have to be brought in with make goods and it has to be made up somewhere because a sponsor or advertiser has been sold those spots and they haven't been provided to them. So there's all kinds of complications that can exist with games being cut short in top level competition. So she's got a good point. And I, and I know the players, I think, just have to get their heads around looking at different types of competitions differently. And I think, again, that's been one of the challenges. They kind of, to some degree, look at everything the same way. And uh, again, I think it's education, it's understanding. And uh, again, getting everybody in the same room to discuss all these things and uh, to come up with the solutions. If you're down 10-3 after nine ends, what, what would you do, Kev? Are you, are, you, are you curling or are you walking off? Yeah, but I'm a big baseball fan, and sometimes, you know, the, the Jays the other day were up 18-4 to four late in the game against the Red Sox. Well, Red Sox aren't allowed to just, yeah, to heck with it. It's seventh inning, we'll never catch up, or 14 down. So they just shake hands and leave through the, well, that can't do that. So I, I agree, you know, as our sport grows, like when you're talking traditional, the curling fan, they understand that at the club level, you're down a bunch head her on in, order some chicken wings and, and beer, and, and uh, it gives you an extra half hour to uh, BS rather than curl. But this is different now. As sport is growing worldwide at such an incredible rate, we're bringing in people that aren't from the traditional curling crowd. They don't realize that curling used to be where if you're way down, you can shake hands after five, six, or seven ends. So I, I totally think this is a big one that needs to change, and I'm going to get emails and phone calls from curlers because uh, they're not going to like to hear what I have to say. But it's true that um, we need to play until you're mathematically out. Ticket prices are going up. The events are, are selling out. We, we can't have teams quit early. One time in a Canada Cup, I'm not going to say who we played against, but it was a really big name. And the, the building was sold out. This was in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. Sold out, 1,800 people in the building. And first end, um, the other fellow ticks on the guard. We, we get five. They shook. <laughs> one end. One, one end. <laughs> because they had to play again. So they thought they'd head back to the hotel, have a nap, and get ready to play in the in the C qualifier. And <laughs> so it was a one-end game. It went about 12 minutes. And uh, you know, that's the extreme. But it's, it's something that does need to change. As our sport, which is terrific, is growing around the globe, uh, we need to make sure that uh, the games go the proper length of time for many reasons. And sometimes, um, I'm going to another uh, situation I don't remember. Um, so, this event was, uh, it was CBC that I was working for, and it was Bruce Rainey. And the game ended a little bit early, not ridiculously early, but a little bit early. And I remember the uh, producer saying, We've got to fill some airtime. And uh, uh, Brad Gushu, <laughs> of course, he's really good to talk to. He, I saw him uh, coming back into the arena for some reason, must have forgot something. Or, and I yelled down to him that we have to fill some time. Brad, would you mind coming up so we can interview you up on the platform so we can fill some minutes? So he said, well, sure. So he grabs his team jacket, has the sponsors on it, and comes up top. And, and he stands between Bruce and I, and we're going to just interview him and, and, and chat with, with Brad. So uh, the producer comes through, and Bruce says to him, uh, Bruce Rainey, who's awesome, he said, uh, how much time we got to fill? And it was, the guy's name was Phil, actually, <laughs> and uh, the uh, the producer. And uh, Phil says, uh, 12 minutes. And so as soon as the commercial, go, we come back from commercial, you're going to talk for 12 minutes. And Brad, Brad Gushu, 12 minutes? Like, 12 minutes on air is an eternity. 12 minutes of live television straight 
was eternity. So anyway, we talked to Brad for twelve. It was actually really good because you know Brad's really well spoken and and everybody likes him. And anyway, so I get home after the event's done, and uh, uh, Michaela, who would have been about maybe grade eleven or twelve at that time, says. Uh, I said, uh, did you watch the end of the game at the very end? And uh, yeah, what a great part when you actually talk to Brad for a long time. That was the best part of the whole game. And I said, well, no, but I, I thought you knew that we were tap dancing <laughs> because the game ended early. We had to fill 12 minutes of time. She said, no, that was great. So, you know, it's funny how it goes, but uh, but that's the reason to also play right to the to till you're mathematically out is because of not just the amount of time that you have booked for television, but if you quit early, how do you fill that time? One of the issues may be going down the road when you bring this up about sponsors. If I buy a ticket to the U.S. Open in golf and uh, I'm going, this will be great. I'm going to see Bryson and Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, you know, Colin Mark, Howard, you know, Tagger, Phil Mickelson. If all those guys miss the cut, they're out for the final weekend. And I, I'm a sponsor going, you got to let them stay and play, man. We got a lot of people interested and the viewership would be way up I, I i always thought that might be an issue down the road but i can tell you jim they try to do things to ensure that that doesn't happen and i mean this is again in curling why these round robin preliminaries are important because you're going to have your best players out there for the major portion of the event so they play tournament play in golf not match play for those very reasons in match play your top players could be eliminated in the first or second round and so that's the main reason they don't play match play. And the other thing with match play, it's very difficult to follow. Uh, it's not hard to follow tournament play. They, they know who's at the top of the leaderboard and the whole thing falls in place. So that's one of the reasons they do what they do. In curling, a lot of people like to get into triple knockouts and all these type of different types of playoffs. But that's, again, one of the problems with those approaches that they're very hard for people to follow versus round robins are easy to follow. And then once you get into playoffs, so is that. So those are things that always have to be taken into consideration. I can remember as well when we went from five sheets of ice to four sheets of ice back in 1995. One of the main reasons for that, uh, there were many, but we also had research which many of the arenas we were going into with five sheets of ice, it was too difficult to see the outside sheets. And the other thing that it was with the novice fan as well, with five sheets going, it's easier for them to follow four. So you may not think it's a major issue, but it, it becomes another point that, that makes the thing a little more appealing. So all these things have to be taken into consideration when you're building a property that's going to attract television viewers and spectators in the building is what's going to be the best approach for them to follow. And often what happens in all sports, the people who are really enthusiastic about the sport and the players and everybody else, they look at things through a different eye than the casual fandoms. And that's always a challenge. We had a great Zoom call this past weekend with a curling club from Kentucky, uh, and it, it was great. Uh, we've done uh, a, a lot of these now, and if you'd like us to do a Zoom call with your curling club, get a hold of us, uh, and we'll set that up uh, with me, Kevin, and uh, Warren, and we'd love to do it again. Uh, I, weren't they great, Kevin? I, I couldn't get my head around the fact that there was a curling club in Kentucky, and they started out, Kevin, with nothing. They just had an idea sitting around having a beer, and eight months later, they had a, not, not dedicated ice, but they were using arena ice. Isn't it amazing? Eight months. That's, that's actually what we were told. Yes. Uh, Bethany told us that. And, uh, and uh, thank you, uh, Bethany and, and Brett and everybody from uh, Kentucky who, uh, who was on that uh, Zoom call. Yeah, to, to build a club 
in eight from the, from eight months talking about it, and then eight months later, you're you're throwing your first rock and uh, very passionate group uh, in Kentucky, and certainly wish them all the best uh, going forward with their, of course, trying to uh, to get dedicated ice, and uh, and you know I, I hope it works out well for them. Inside curling at gmail.com uh, if you'd like us to do that. We have producers now. We're big time of the show. Uh, of course, that's Warren Hansen and uh, Amal Delic. Uh, mixed and sound designed by Amal and social media is done by Jonathan Brazo. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. It's active. Uh, check it out. Uh, we've got additional editing support from Andrew Holland. Thank you. We would like to also extend a big thank you to Rod Paulson uh, and his company, uh, In-House Strategies, for all the great work they're doing on our Facebook page. Uh, join us next week again. We've got a guest coming on like we've had lots of. Aaron Flowers is coming on, the president of Gold Line Curling Supplies. And she's also involved in a program called United We Curl. Totally interesting, Kevin, that. And uh, we're going to talk to her next week. So everybody go back to doing what you're doing. And uh, Kevin, you and I are going to join the four hours of uh, warmth that's left for the summer here in Edmonton. <laughs> Take it easy, everybody. We'll see you, Kevin. We'll see you, Warren, next week. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim.